starts with with Palm Sunday. And so it's our practice here to spend a few moments in silence. I'm going to pray and then we'll, we'll talk about the text here. Let's pray. Father, it's so good to be in the presence of your people, but more more than that, it's good to be in your presence. Because you are our creator, you sustain us, you breathe life into us, you cleanse us, and you are our king. And Lord, for every single person that's ever walked the face of the earth, besides Jesus, um, that statement, the fact that you are king, is, is actually, a, it's a war within our hearts It's a war day in and day out of actually um, loving that you are our king. And what a sermon is, Lord, is is you confronting us both individually and collectively and and constraining us to bow before you. To come before you as your image reflecting you in submission to you in love of you. And so we, we know that that can't happen unless your Holy Spirit is poured out onto your people. And so I pray that we would not grieve the Spirit right now, that we would invite you in, and that you would give us the ability to keep you in. In Christ's name, amen. amen. When I was first learning to preach, the very first sermon I preached was from the book of Hosea. And it was actually about a donkey. Um, The pastor, I worked a long time uh, on it. And the pastor sat down and he's like, hey, I I like what you have here. Um, And it seems like it's well thought out. And then he asked me the question. He said, but Matt, do you actually believe this? And this is this is the difference between, you know, a sermon is different than like a TED talk or a lecture, because what what a sermon is supposed to be for the deliverer and the recipient is that we are wanting to encounter the living God. We are wanting to have an experience of God himself in this moment. And what Palm Sunday is about is Jesus Christ riding into the midst of people who are saying something with their mouth, but they don't yet fully recognize what they're saying in their hearts. They don't recognize it yet. Um, Sinclair Ferguson, another mentor type, 
of mine, professor type, he said he ministered in South Carolina for, for years and years and years. And late into his ministry, he said that this older lady came to him after one of his sermons and he was old himself. So she she must have been about 80. And she said uh, she's like she was wagging her finger at the congregation. She said, you know, pastor, all of these people, they think I've been a Christian for decades around here. But it's not true. I became a Christian two years ago and I've been giddy ever since. And she had been saying the Apostles Creed for for decades. And Sinclair Ferguson was like, she was so tiny. I could have picked her up. I was so happy. Um, And and here's here's the point uh, that I want us to discuss today. Whether you're a self-professed Christian or not, we really are, in the end, all asking one question. Um, Is there hope? Is there hope for somebody like me? Um, Is there hope to to live for something or or to live for someone? Is there, is it actually, uh, is there there somebody who, who we can say he, He's our king to put the crown on something or someone. Palm Sunday gives a definitive answer to that question. But the pattern of how Jesus wins the crown is absolutely agonizing. The way up is down. The way of life is through death. Palm Sunday is about the king of the world coming into the city as victorious. And when kings would come home from battle... They would be thrown a victory spoil from people within the city because the king protected the city and they they were happy. And this was like in the recent history of the Jews, like 200 200 years, 150 years before Jesus, a guy named Judas Maccabeus uh, whooped up on the Greeks and defended the city of Jerusalem. And this is in the minds of the people as they're thinking about Passover and just so that we're not removed from what that would mean, I mean, just imagine, imagine uh, President Zelensky in Ukraine actually defeating Russia and what it would be like if he did that and then he rode back into Kiev. How exciting that would have been. Jerusalem was Roman occupied. That's the enemy of God's people. Rome was like the bigger, older, stronger brother of the Greeks. And the disciples, I mean, think about like on the heels of what Bruno just read, the disciples literally had just seen Jesus raise somebody from the dead, Lazarus. And they're thinking this this person is about to go to the epicenter and show forth his power, show forth his skills Show forth what he can do. And what do we see Jesus doing? And you see more detail in this in the other Gospels. He's like, go get me a donkey. Um, Go get, you know, you've seen Parks and Rec. Go get little Sebastian, you know. (laughs) I was talking with Mike temporarily after the service last week. I don't know if Mike's in here. But Mike's actually been studying donkeys lately. And he, he says that uh, donkeys apparently have great boundaries, emotional boundaries, uh, because they don't overwork themselves. 
They are uh, intentionally underwhelming animals. And this is, so this is what Jesus does. He says, give me a donkey. This is actually a pattern in all of the Old Testament. I did a lot of study on this this week. Like you, you could have a the- donkeyology. You could actually study that. But God associates his human kingship with donkeys throughout the Old Testament. And it's very interesting to see how donkeys relate to the presence of God throughout the Old Testament. But everyone missed this in the first century. Everyone, when they saw Jesus, thought that he was different than this humble person riding on a colt. Um, And what Jesus has has come to show is that, y'all, his success, this is the God of the universe in human flesh. His success looks very, very, very different than what we imagine. Not only in the first century, not only in the 21st century, but in your own life. That how the gospel is manifested in your own life is hidden. It's humble. And right before um, Jesus rides in into the city, the beautiful thing about Palm Sunday is that what we're given is this, this little window before it gets really bad, this little window of what it's like for everybody to respond to the king like they're supposed to. For everyone to, to praise him. When he's king, and when, when we see him, especially in his glory, what happens is that human beings are changed into servants of the king. Converted. Let's look at that under three, three points. The, the public view of Jesus, the private view of Jesus, and three, the possibility of change with the gospel. The public view of Jesus. What were these palms about? Well, there, there are uh, several things going on. One, the palms were a nationalistic symbol of victory. And when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and people were waving the palms, like we had the children wave the palms in, in our service here, they had one thing in mind. This, this guy is from the line of David. This guy is going to win. Which meant, in their minds, it meant military conquest by force. It meant release from oppression. Hosanna literally means save us. Save us. So these these palms were a a political symbol, much like flags operate in our world today, or... Um, do you guys remember the 4th of July during 2020 here? It was like scary on my street. But uh, think, think like a, a firework to a Nebraskan on the 4th of July, right? Um, this is what the palms were. People were celebrating. Uh, they were coming into the city at, at the Passover, a huge epic celebration. Some think that there was like 100,000. Some think that there were a million. Regardless, there was a lot of buzz during this celebration about Jesus because he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. And if he had that kind of power, they were thinking maybe he could stand up to Rome. And what I want you to see is that the public view of Jesus is that they were thinking this could be the political figure to set us free. 
That's what people wanted out of him. That's what they expected out of him. Now, other theologians have looked at these palms and said, no, what's what's happening here is that creation itself, like the earth, responds with joy when the king comes in the presence of the king. And you may say, well, like, what do you mean? In the Old Testament, you have these illusions uh, everywhere in the Psalms, in the prophets like Isaiah, where the trees of the field clap their hands. And the hills shout for joy. In another gospel, the Pharisees get on to Jesus when he receives this praise from people. And Jesus says, look, if they don't praise me, the very stones are going to cry out. Which must mean that his glory is veiled to us, but the creation knows its maker. That the earth itself comes alive in a different way when it's in the presence of the king. Because the creation knows this is it. Um, My favorite way to illustrate this is from the movie. You guys remember the movie Coming to America with Eddie Murphy? Um, From the fictitious African country, Zamunda. Right. Uh, he embraced, he came to America to find a queen. And the way he did it is that he embraced poverty. But throughout the movie, you get these little hints. People come up to him and start praising him. And people are like showing him money with his face imprinted on it. You know, he's like this king back home. But he wasn't controlled by his public royalty. And he didn't want his future queen to be controlled by it either. Now, look. Think about Jesus. He's from heaven. He created the earth. Think about what's happening on Palm Sunday. He's letting people misunderstand him. And their invitation or their motivation for praising him was off. But the praise itself was accurate. But he didn't trust in the praise of people. This is part of what Paul means. You know, in the book of Philippians, Paul says, because of the gospel, I know how to abound and to be brought low. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the context of that passage. Part of what Paul's saying is that your public self ebbs and flows depending on which crowd you're in front of. We in here want to be thought well of. This is middle America. We want people to think we're good hearty folks. We want to have a good reputation. We want to have success in our communal spheres, but also in our work. And therefore, what people think about us is very, very important to us. We, in a cultural, we're good folks, we put a crown there. Our public perception, our public reputation. When that happens, you'll overthink everything. You'll walk away from conversations worrying. You'll you'll think, oh no, was I too forward? Was I too harsh? Did I speak enough? Was I too shy? Did they like me? You know, you're not settled. 
because you have crowned something that isn't king. And here's part of what Jesus teaches us as he receives public praise from people. He doesn't say, you better stop doing that, nor does he crave it. But he knows where to put the praises of other people. I love that. The things that Jesus chooses and doesn't choose to correct. He knows what's going to happen in the lips of these same people. The irony of the palms is that they did point to Jesus's victory, but his victory would mean that the very people that would praise him with their lips, they had murder in their hearts, which is the most dangerous praise of all. This is why that pastor asked me, hey, this is good what you wrote here. Do you actually believe it, Matt? Do you? You're telling other people they need to cry out that God would save them. Do you believe that about yourself? Do you think that there's hope for somebody like you? And as Jesus rides into the city on the donkey, it says that the disciples, they don't get it. Verse 16. The the gospel is like a perpetual time release pill where it it only makes total sense in retrospect. You're like, oh, that's what God was teaching me the whole time. And it's just further up and further in to Jesus. And these disciples don't get it. And so what Jesus gives us here, or John, the writer of this gospel, is a little vignette with Andrew and Philip. And what he's doing is Jesus gives them a little private lesson. And he's telling them uh, what's really going on. So point to the private teaching here. Uh, all these Greeks were looking for Jesus and Andrew and Philip come and tell Jesus. And then in verse 23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. That's the turning point of the gospel. What is his hour? Jesus is telling his disciples what I've been telling you about this whole time is about to happen. I'm heading into the city of peace and he says, I'm going to be glorified there. Again, they were thinking <clears throat> defeat of Rome. And they're so confused that Jesus has to use metaphor. In verse 24 through 27, he's got to privately teach them. Jesus knows that it's time for him to enter evil. For him to face what is in the hearts of men and women. And to defeat it. And it says in verse 27 that this is very troubling to the Son of Man. Jesus could have defeated our enemies by force if they weren't inside of us. This is why he he does not ride in on, on a war horse until you realize what he was after. He was on a mission to win your heart that our enemies aren't physical. Our problems are not out there. Our problem is that our heart doesn't know how to submit to its maker. And he had to save us. This is the whole point of the gospel. He had to save us without destroying us. And so he chooses a donkey because he knew that there was something more powerful than physical force. And it's the pattern of submission. What I like to call biblical resignation to the will of God. And it's very counterintuitive. And it's so confusing to us that Jesus has to use metaphor to teach it to us. 
and verse 24 through 25, this is how he says it. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Hate's a strong word. Here's the lie of evil and one that we all have to wrestle with at all times. You can have anything you want and that's true freedom. It's that inner voice inside all of our hearts that looks and says, nobody tells me what to do. I'm in control of myself. I don't need saving. And that's what Jesus Christ has come to undo and defeat. And it's spiritual. None of us in here are going to change because of that information. Because you are given information doesn't change you. And so what Jesus is doing with this metaphor, he's he is telling Philip and Andrew what to do. But he's also stating a blatant reality that in the end, this is what what it boils down to for all of us. In the end, one must serve Christ or you must demand that he serve you and your agenda. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, Jesus says the father will honor him. How is it actually possible Think about it. Think about your own life. How is it actually possible to serve him? Can that happen? Many theologians have said it. Jesus leaves us only two options. We either crown him or crucify him. That's what it boils down to. And there is no in between. In point three, I want to talk about the possibility of change. And the teaching here is that if you die... You live. One of my children asked me the other day, what happened to all the insects from last year? And how do they come back? You know, um, uh, they don't have very long lives, do they? These insects. Before they died last year, they buried what would come alive in the future. Death and resurrection are woven into the fabric of creation and into the fabric of your own story. What I want you to do right now is think about that pattern. Think about the things that you thought were going to bring terror into your very life. The hard things. The things even now that you wish would go away. When you get through those things, don't you find them to be the places where you actually got joy that is lasting. There have been many who have told me when they're in the dating phase of their life, I don't know why this happened, but the moment I got to a place of being okay with being single, the moment I prayed to God and I said, okay, I don't have to be in this relationship, even though it feels like I'm just going to crumble if it ends. They say <laughs> is the moment that someone showed up in my life and we started dating. Now, like this does not always play out this way. Um, some people remain single for the rest of their life. But I think part of what's happening there is that when we stop reaching out for things in this world, 
to crown, to actually change us, to give you meaning. It's like the world (coughs) opens up for the first time. It comes alive. And I think part of what's going on in a spiritual sense is that you're, you're not looking to the things in this creation to give you what it could never what it could never give you. You're, you're trying to put a crown on something and, and when people feel that in you, when you are releasing them from that bondage of expectation and you look to Christ, it's like things come alive. You see the earth for what it's supposed to be. And I know we, we talk about uh, the Chronicles of Narnia a lot here <laughs> in this church. But C.S. Lewis had this fictitious world called Narnia, which was a metaphor for heaven. And one time, this kid in Narnia named Diggory wanted to bring an apple back to his mother in London who was dying. She'd been sick for a long time. And he finds this apple and he, and he brings it back uh, to his mother. And this is what it says. The moment he took the apple out of his pocket, all those other things seemed to have scarcely any color at all in the room. Every one of them, even the sunlight, looked faded and dingy. Nothing else was worth looking at. Indeed, you couldn't look at anything else. And the smell of the apple of youth was as if there was a window in the room that was open to heaven. Here's how you change. Think about the places in your life that show forth the dimness and the disappointment that you hate feeling. And what God wants to do in those exact places is that he wants to ride through in your story and say, embrace it. Embrace those those places in your life that you don't want to go into. Embrace death. Embrace the fact that this world can't deliver. That's what he means when he says you have to hate your life in this world if you want to keep it. Think about the death, the death of Christ itself or your own death. Death is the greatest enemy of the devil. And how did how did God fix it? It's like he's the the greatest judo artist ever where he uses the enemy's greatest strength against itself. That's the pattern in your own life. That those places of, of deep suffering are what Jesus has come to fill up. That is the pattern of of Palm Sunday. And what God does in the lives of other people, and we'll see it here in this baptism, we see it in the baptism of the babies. Um, We face these many small deaths in each season of our lives so that we can have poise to face our own physical death, but more so that you can see the glory of the true King That when he is lifted up on the cross, you're changed when you believe in him. That you, the human heart, it it can happen. The human heart can actually believe what it professes internally. So the great glory of Jesus is is not that he can subdue your enemies or change your circumstances, 
but he literally has the power to subdue your heart. So that you can delight like that old lady <laughs> in her 80s. And she's like, yeah, I actually became a Christian a couple of years ago. Look, um, this, is, this is the point of, of sermons. Um, have you ever actually said to Jesus, whether you're a Christian or not, will you save me? Can you save somebody like me? Is there hope for somebody like me? Palm Sunday is Jesus answering that question that we all have, and you'll see it in verse 27 as we close. How does he do that? He cries out to God, Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. You know what Jesus was saying to God? He was saying back to God, Hosanna. Save me, God. And God says, no, that's what this week is about. So that you can be saved. So that I can be saved. That he let himself be defeated. He had the appearance of losing so that he could rescue us because he loves you. And he gives us a window uh, into the other world. Now, now you, you're going to sit here and think, okay, uh, what, what do I do with that? Well, part of the church's role in the life of, of believers is to be stewards of the mysteries of grace. And a mystery is these, these sacraments, these baptisms. And how I want you to think about these, these sacraments is that these are windows into the new world. These are little glimpses of when the clouds part, just like on Palm Sunday, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is where I belong. When Ashna gets baptized here in a little bit, what she's saying is that I belong with the king. And what that does for all of us in the room is that we are to remember our own baptism. That I belong to the king, you belong to the king, and we belong in submission to the king. And so as we eat the bread from heaven, as we observe this baptism, um, as we confess our sins, let us think about the king as he rides into the city and gives us peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Palm Sunday. We thank you that you have been kind, uh, so kind to us in each and every way. And as we meditate on Jesus on a donkey, (laughs) um, that we would know that that pattern is alive and well in our own lives. And it's our call to pay attention to it and submit to it. And so, Lord, please help us not to run away from the hard parts of our story. Um, Help us not to run away from the pain. Help us not to medicate by trying to to love this life so much and make it not hurt. Um, But that we open ourselves up to you.